0: Crafties, welcome to another episode of the Arena Craft Podcast, a show focused exclusively on Magic the Gathering Arena. I'm one of your hosts, Arjuna. Regular co-host Covertco Blue is continuing his sabbatical, so he'll be gone for a little while. But in the meantime, we do have another special guest today, which I'm excited to introduce here in a moment. First of all, I just wanted to say Happy New Year. Best wishes for 2022. Hope it's a better year than 2021 was for a lot of us. So we'll see how it goes, but we definitely have a lot to look forward to in the world of magic. Thanks for sticking with us on the show. It means a lot to me, and I'm really excited to see what this new year's gonna bring. Uh, Also, we're not gonna record an outro for this video. I recorded separately with our guest. We usually have an outro spiel where you can find the show. Uh, We're on Spotify, we're on iTunes, we're on all the usual places. You can catch Covert, Go Blue, and I streaming on Twitch. We have a Discord, we have a Patreon, we appreciate it if you hang out in those as well. It's really helpful to us. So anyway, without further ado, let me go ahead and introduce our special guest today. It's actually a returning guest to the podcast, Michael J. Flores. We're really fortunate to have Michael with us again. You know, basically he's one of the longest standing content creators in the magic community and a foundational and original article writer. Uh, He actually wrote Perhaps the most famous magic article of all time, Who's the Beatdown? Highly recommended read even now. It's really excellent, taught a lot of people some really important foundational concepts of magic. He's been writing for years. He's also produced a lot of different kinds of content, many podcasts, including the Top Level Podcast, which is one of mine and Covert Go Blue's favorite ongoing podcast. Pro Tour competitor, absolutely top class magic player entertaining personality, Michael J. Flores. Looking forward to rolling this for you. Like I said before, Happy New Year. Dude, every podcast is that way in my experience. Basically, Covert Go Blue shows up Puts his butt in the chair and talks for an hour.
1: For a guy who did a thousand straight days of YouTube video, I was like scooping up for myself. I'm like, I could do that. I wouldn't think I would aspire to seven days a week. Yeah. Like maybe five days a week. So maybe I can make 80% of covert go blues, Scrooge McDuck-esque millions of gold <laughs> ducats from YouTube videos. He doesn't even do a lot of the work, right? He outsources everything. He does. Does he just like cut his his YouTube is so much better than everybody else's YouTube. Far better than everybody else's YouTube. But I've watched his stream and his yeah. stream is equally sucky to everybody else's stream because I can't stand streaming, yeah, but I yeah. love his videos, right? Yeah. So like somehow this stream, which is like equally, uh, uh, <laughs> uh the people are just like, uh, uh that's their whole stream, right? Yeah. And then it gets to this like, it, it, I don't know, it, it, somehow it transforms on this.
0: He actually does record the videos separately for the most part. And I'll give you the secret is that he records three days worth of content in one day. Yeah. So that's how he manages to not go totally insane. Is he'll just. But then, does he pretend to do live commentary? Because what I used to do is I would record the games and yeah. I would pretend to do live commentary. Oh and I'm just no! And
1: like, I, I would just be like, and I know what's <laughs> going to happen, and be like, oh, wouldn't it be weird if?
0: And then oh like, man! Oh wow! That so happened. You, then you look like a genius. I'm pretty sure he's just doing it straight, like live off the cuff. I think one of the brutal things, though, is that he has to record every single game. Like it's going on the video, but I mean, I'm sure at least fifty percent of them don't. I don't get how he cuts. It's like arbitrary. Like I'm watching like an event, right? So in my head, an event is
1: seven games unless you die early, right? So he's just playing an event. He's like, I'm going to show you three games. One <laughs> of the games was long. One of the games was boring. So I cut the boring game. I, I don't know, man. <laughs> Try trying to watch the event oh, here. Oh,
0: man. This is old school versus new school, right? Because the new school, it's all about that engagement. You know, if the game's on fire, he's no. watching his graphs go down. So I don't
1: get that I think Cobreco Blue personally, like, ruined the, the game, maybe for himself. Because he clearly had the best hustle going on. And everyone else was like, Twitch, 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 Twitch. Yeah. And he was, like, the one who was the YouTube kingpin. Now, everybody's trying to get on YouTube or whatever. Not that everybody's watchable. But like, I would just, you know, I don't know what to do. It's like a Saturday night and I'm like bored and nothing's going on. I'll throw on, I just have an app, right? So I open Mm -hmm. the app and I'm like, all right, I'll scroll through magic content. And like, most of it stinks. The thing that would get me is like, this guy's playing at mythic level and he just doesn't even understand his own matchups. Like I, I, This is my own fault. I watched some guy for like two hours. I couldn't tell you who it was one night. And he's like playing mono green in mythic and he just keeps losing to control decks. And he doesn't understand that he's in a bad matchup. He's just like, oh, I don't know why I keep losing this. I don't know, because they all have rats. And you have all dudes. And you just keep playing dudes into their
0: rats. I don't know about these content creators these days. All I'm saying, man, is that there's a large space waiting and ready for you. I, I thought, thought
1: about it. I'm like, maybe I could just be a professional content creator. No, nah, I think I'm going to get a job instead. Uh, that will be what I do.
0: I'm not sure what you've been doing all of these years. I thought so- that that already... Applied to you there. I came to New York to run the dojo.
1: I did that for a while. And then I mostly had jobs. I was always writing. I was writing since when I was in college. I started getting paid to write around 98. So I wrote for Mark Rosewater. All right. So I wrote for a print magazine called the Duelist Sideboard. I mean, I had contracts, I had to get stuff in on time. So hold on. So this was separate from Duelist, right? Which was like Duelist sideboard. No, no, I think I wrote for the Duelist now that you now that you mentioned the Duelist and the Duelist Sideboard were two different magazines. Okay. Yeah. But yeah. I I think I wrote for the duelist now that you mentioned. So I, yeah. I literally was a professional magazine writer in ninety-eight, ninety nine. That was before I got paid to write for the dojo. I had always wrote for like Usenet, right? That was like text-based stuff. And Frank Kusumoto, who was the original sensei of the dojo, would just pull things that were good off of Usenet and he would put it on the dojo. Like basically like, I don't know, stealing. People got a kick out of it, right? Like, you know, we got wider publication. And then I think it was summer of 98, I was at Nationals and Frank just like handed a ton of product to me. And I had never been compensated for online articles I'd written. So he'd give me like hundreds and hundreds of dollars in, in sealed product. And I didn't want to take it. It wasn't a thing that I did. Then I like ran the dojo for a few years. Then I just had a regular job after that, but my friends were still running the dojo. And so I made it, at the time, I thought like a dumb amount of money for writing magic articles. Like I used to say, like, I lived in New York and I could pay all my bills on my, That's on my magic writing. Like by 2000. No
0: feet, right? And then
1: Chapin says, like, I really kind of made the game like around 2003. I was like the first... Star City Premium writer. I think, like, technically, like, Mark Young, who is a friend of mine still who as a New York movie club and stuff. I think he had the first article printed under the Star City banner because he was on a Monday. Patting myself on the head, if you want to say like, who are the people who were carrying the subscriptions loads through the generations that have been like Zvi, then me, then Patrick. That, That was the thing that I did for a long stretch. And I made a decent amount of money writing magic articles from 2003 to 2014 or whatever. Started doing podcasting around 2006, 2005, something like that. Off and on. And then we did started doing top level around 2014, I think, which was obviously my most sustained, consistent effort on the podcasting front to date. But yes, to answer your question, as yes, I mostly had a job most of the time, I've never been a full time magic content creator. Although maybe I was. I think like maybe I just was the equivalent of somebody who had three jobs. You I did that, that for a while. Side hustle game, you know. But that's probably more accurate. I mean, I live in New York City, right? I think it probably was if I lived somewhere else, and maybe if I didn't have a family I was supporting, I would have had a different outlook on how much money you were making writing magic articles or whatever, but I guess I just had the equivalent of somebody who had three jobs. Right. So, Uh, I did that for a long time. I mean, that's not sustainable for a 40-something-year-old person, right? I was sleeping like two hours a night or whatever for 10 years. That's
0: (laughs) the answer to how he does it, folks.
1: And then, I I mean, obviously, I took the foot off the accelerator, but I, yeah, I just had some changes in my life, uh, my personal life this year that were all super positive, but just kind of figuring out what I might want to do next. And there was a window there, including my accounting guy slash tax attorney, John Becker, former Magic the guy named Tour player, was just like, why don't you just be a professional
0: (laughs) Magic content creator?
1: It sounds like Cooper Coglu does pretty well.
0: <laughs> he's doing a lot better than a lot of content creators out there. He's he's a big fan of your work. So all I'm, I'm saying, saying is there's a, a-, a golden throne available for you. Well, Should you choose to accept it?
1: Well, Probably not. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if I have the wherewithal. Maybe if I if maybe this was 10, 10 years ago I was trying to do this. Like if this was 20 years ago, I think I, I might have had a different bite. I, people don't believe it. When I was in law school, I played Magic 40 hours a week. I was always what? on the pro tour back. I played 40 hours a week of magic while I was in law school. So, so that was, uh, moto? there was no moto then I'm talking okay. about like 99. Uh, um, okay. I played against myself on apprentice a uh, lot. So, okay. I found out that, I mean, I also played real life tournaments, right? So I was like traveling to tournaments every week, but people are like, how come Kai Buddha is so good. And I found out from Eric Taylor, He was just in Kai's hotel room. And he's just like, the reason Kai does so well is because he cares the most. What do you mean he cares the most? He walks into his hotel room. It's like 6 a.m. Everybody's asleep. Kai has two apprentice windows open and he's playing the top eight matchup against himself. Right? This is how you do it? It's certainly like mid aughts, like around 2004. I was like so prolific at articles and so prolific at good deck design. I was mostly playing against myself on apprentice back then. You get a lot of data through and you get a lot of questions answered and you fix a lot of problems if you know how to do this properly. And approaching playing against yourself on Apprentice is extraordinarily difficult in terms of avoiding bias. Mm. But, like, at some point, mm-hmm. if you're punching yourself in the face enough, you learn. I would say that Moto ruined that. The last deck that I made that way that was like really of good substantial notoriety was I was probably Critical Mass, and what happened was that's the first time I logged into my God account on Moto, and I played Critical Mass on Moto, and I just never lost. And I'm like, user interface wise, it was so much easier. To just get games on, Hmm. but like my volume of games went down. If you're just playing against yourself, you know what both decks are. You're trying to hit the matchup. I don't know. I probably did like a 10 game set before work every day, right? Wow. Less than an hour. And I just, I understand certain matchups so well. Just because I just played both sides of them. I don't know if I ever talked about this. That was like the big secret of that era. And then Moto came and I just, I got lazy. I just got like everybody else. And you, you don't think of Moto grinders as being lazy compared to what I used to do. Yeah, I mean, you're only playing half the
0: matchup, right? So.
1: Well, yeah, and also the amount of time you're doing it, right? Like, yeah, how many games do you get in an
0: hour? Like three? You're probably getting like 10 games playing both sides in an hour. So. No rope on Moto, right? No, that's actually really cool to kind of peer behind the curtain. A, a lot of people have... The perspective that before Moto, it was just like testing houses. Maybe you had like someone who was no, lucky enough to live with some other Magic players. Or testing whatever. houses was later. Okay, first of all, I also lived with a bunch of Magic players. So that
1: around helps. 2000, the dojo was like. Our original thought was that we were all going to be millionaires out of the dojo, right? So that that didn't happen. I mean, it happened on paper, but like I couldn't spend it. So. Money came in, but. Yeah, <laughs> So uh, that didn't happen for me in a real way. So what ended up happening was around the spring of 2000, we had all these magic players who basically all lived together. And we all went to the office together. And we were just like, like we we're still getting the dojo up, right? But we we're working mm. really hard, like trying to build like a legitimate startup business before then. You know, I just spent every afternoon figuring out one ofs in my black vampiric tutor deck. Lo and behold,
0: you do that for like two months straight, you end up with a pretty good deck turns out that time in is still an important part of the equation for sure. That's a funny-ish story.
1: So I qualified with Napster for Nationals, and so I was on the testing team with John Finkel. I think I have a pretty good dad. That was my statement. So we played a total of three games, Napster against, I think, one game against Blue, two games against Rebels, and John lost the game against Blue. So I said you should do this. And I think he's playing against Chris Bakula. And He's like, nah, you shouldn't do that. That's wrong. I'm like, you should definitely do this. John lost the game, then won both games against Rebels. We only played three total constructed testing games total for the national championship. John said this deck is obviously the best. <laughs> <laughs> I'm only going to concentrate on limited. This was like one of his comebacks. He had at that point already retired for the first time and he won the limited portion, qualified for the limited masters. I guess he was right in concentrating on limited and then won the national championship with a total of three t- three. People are like, oh, my God, how do you get to be the best player ever in the history of magic? How do you have the best deck? He played three games. Dan O'Mahony Schwartz made like a decent number of changes from the regionals version of Napster, but took out powder kegs for less flexible cards, more bullets, and a fourth vampiric tutor. Three three games of testing
0: version. You can't mess with that. It is what it is, right? It's so you've got Kai Buddha on one side getting in more reps than anyone else. <laughs> oh yeah,
1: more reps than is humanly possible. For the <laughs> right,
0: and then you've got John Finkel, who's just I don't even know what's in the water that guy drinks. It's not that John didn't want to work. John worked. He just worked unlimited. His his whole thing was like there's no point
1: in testing this anymore we literally had a deck that if you cast a one casting cost spell you won every matchup so what's the point is Parrish not going to be good against Stompy this round he played Stompy like multiple (laughs) times in the tournament he had a hard time with Aaron Forsythe though Mm. in the top four Aaron played a deck that we didn't know uh, so he had to improvise on the, fly, on, on the fly, except for he kind of didn't. One of Aaron's roommates had a full 75. I don't know, for barnacle purposes, just tested with us the night before. So we learned the oh, matchup no. that way. <laughs> it wasn't like how it is now. Like now yeah. everybody sends all their arena deck lists in. Five days yeah. before the tournament and they're published, right? Oh, yeah,
0: Frank Coston's already done a full analysis yeah, like, before the tournament even there's, starts. There's no surprises now. Yeah. Sitting
1: at the Pro Tour, the last Pro Tour I played in February of two thousand or whatever, you literally like hand your opponent your deck list before the game starts so that they can have a really nicely exhaustive knowledge of what they should be mulliganing into and you know what tricks you might have in your sideboard, which is insanity to me. From my perspective as a when I got back on the Pro Tour, which was like around 2014 2015 the idea of scouting teams right like having your barns out there with like a list of all the players in the tournament writing what archetype they had down was such a ridiculously different edge than like i didn't have that in my first generation as a player it doesn't matter now like now you literally have to hand people a. I mean if there were paper tournaments now you would have to hand your opponent your deck list which is what we
0: did in Phoenix. World changes, man. (laughs) Different times, man. I just love getting that perspective, right? Because sometimes it feels like things have changed so rapidly. It's all of these little incremental changes that have gotten us from what you're talking about to where we are now. Kamigawa's coming up. There was a Kamigawa Skins Game Pro Tour
1: in... Philadelphia, I want to say 2004 or 2005. I just remember this match so distinctly. Mark Herberholz, who ended up making top eight, is playing against Tsuyushu Fujita, who's a Hall of Famer. Two very different deck designers, two of the greatest deck designers of all time. And I'm lucky enough to know both of them. Hezy has the card Cranial Extraction in his deck. You know, this card has been reprinted in different names, you know, a bunch of times. Yep. And he, Cranial Extractions, Fujita for the card mind blaze which is like an extraordinarily inefficient fireball type effect but is theoretically a way that Fujita would be able to win it doesn't get any hits and then in game three <laughs> he does it again mind blaze and you don't they don't have to have it in their hand yeah. it's in their deck it's okay yeah misses again so I asked him afterwards I'm like when you cradled him for mind blaze in game two why did you cradle <laughs> him for mind blaze again in game three He's just like I was sure he had it.
0: The soul read, I guess. Well, no, (laughs) because
1: some idiot had told Heezy that Fujita had mind blaze. Oh, no. And he was going to mind blaze him. So he just had a terrible scout. That just doesn't happen now.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's
1: no mind blaze in his deck. You can see that.
0: You had actually just gotten around to mentioning, and I'm definitely curious to hear your thoughts about Kamigawa Neon Dynasty, right? Oh. Spoiler alert. I've got kind of a sub theme to this conversation And the sub-theme is old-school magic meets new-school game design. We're seeing this in multiple ways. And the first way that I want to address with you is this futuristic setting. Kamigawa Neon Dynasty. So, like, how do you feel as someone who was there the first time, who went to Kamigawa originally? I mean, what's going through your mind when you're like, Kamigawa and holograms? I care zero. <laughs> I was hanging out with, uh,
1: with some of my friends, like, with, like, Taya Steele a few years ago, and she was telling me a about, like, how much people cared about sliver redesigns. Because people really care about sliver redesigns. This is, like, 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they put legs on slivers or whatever they did,
0: you know, <laughs> oh, whatever horrible
1: crime. <laughs> yeah. Slivers have legs now. And I'm like, why would you possibly care if slivers have legs? And she's like, people care passionately about this. Mm. I... Don't care. I look at it and I'm like, speaking of Kamigawa, Sakura Tribelder costs one and a G for a one-one with a rampant growth ability. And it's a snake. I think it's a snake, Shaman. It's a snake of some kind. Does it bother me that the snake has hands? No. <laughs> it would bother me if I didn't have a basic land in my deck when I sacrificed it. That might bother me. But the fact that the snake the snake has hands does not bother me. Some of the stuff they've done aesthetically is really cool. I get a kick out of it. And I just like it. I like watching the preview video. I think the concept of a fairy tale themed set, you know, a horror-themed set. That's cool. You got to have some kind of art on the cards. And I think that it's better than it was, like, years ago. There's, like, some zombie. I remember, like, calling Aaron Forrest. I literally just called his phone, sitting at his desk at Watsy, like, to complain that there was, like, some Scourge zombie. And he just jacked. He looks like the Hulk. I'm like, yo, this is a zombie. He should be desiccated, right? Like, he shouldn't be jacked. Zombies are falling apart, everybody knows that. Why does he look like, you know, a bodybuilder? It's like, I don't know, man. What do you bother me about this? This is a, this is a stupid conversation. He said I'm gonna complain about that time John Finkel beat me in the Angry Hermit <laughs> Napster matchup at Nationals 2000. I could have been a contender. It doesn't bother me, so they have glowing neon swords. We live in a world already that is magic and also like steampunk. You know, the weatherlight is like a mechanical flying mm. ship, right? Karn is a robot. Like they got robots. I mean, oh, I don't know. He's a golem. i don't know, a magic robot. I am the wrong person to ask about these sets. What I'm getting is that you're not much of a Vothos. Maybe not, man. I have really strong opinions who the best magic artists are, but what okay. the best magic artists and it's probably people won't agree with me. I think Quentin Hoover is hands down the best magic. Uh,
0: I mean, it's hard to argue, right? Like some of the most classic ever Quentin Hoover, for sure. Do you but, have like a couple favorite cards that just really yeah, jump out? Yeah, there's two at you? cards
1: I think that are just so good. One of them is Regeneration from the original set. Yes. Look at Regeneration, man. Amazing just look good. at it. It tells the story of what a card named Regeneration would do in simple line art. Four color yeah. line art. It yeah. looks fantastic. It tells the story. The other card I think is fantastic. I think a lot of people don't like this one because it, you know, maybe a little political is Earthbind. Okay. Earthbind <laughs> depicts what would happen if you had a flying creature that was no longer flying and why. And it does so in an incredibly elegant way. Whether or not this art should have been commissioned is a different question, but its execution
0: is flawless. I'm definitely here for the line art. I agree that that particular piece hasn't aged so well. I'm glad that we're able to acknowledge that, right? And I'm glad that we're able to see that magic, it's a work in progress. So, both Regeneration and
1: Earthbind are spells. Makavata came up around the same neighborhood that I came up. And we were PTQ Road Buddies before he became the art director at Watsy. There was a time, and I don't know, you probably know this about me, where I was trying to be an artist and I was like a very briefly a movie no. illustrator. I, I didn't know that. Actually. In some of this, I was in the high profile art contest. I had a mention in Daily Variety sometime, I think in 2003. So Matt's like, this is really cool, right? People don't know this about you. So he commissioned me to do a piece for what would have been Saviors of Kamigawa, I think. Either Betrayers of Kamigawa or Saviors of Kamigawa. No way. And he's just like, you draw it, you do your thing, which is going to be lion art, and then I'll paint it on top. That was the thing. I didn't do a good enough job. And so he just ended up painting not a great Matt Kavata piece. A very like Matt Kabata had 15 minutes left to do this piece because I didn't do a good enough job. <laughs> okay. I can tell you... The reason for that isn't because I can't draw. It is because depicting spells isn't that easy. So I think mm-hmm. both Regeneration and Earthbind do an amazing job of depicting what a spell would do and telling the story of that spell. Playtest name of the card was something like Blade Rush or something, but it, it ended up being the card Hundred Talon Strike from one of the Kamagawas. So I just like made like a ninja looking dude. I think like he, if I can recall, like the art direction was like spirits in this upcoming set the set hadn't come out yet obviously have lanterns around this is going to be like a first strike ish sort of card right like that's the extent of the the notes i got so i drew like a ninja looking guy with some paper lanterns floating around him that's a ninja dude with, that's a creature that's not a blade rush i think is what it was called or i think it was hundred talent strike is the name of. It. it's not a good card so depicting spells is not easy now i think that they've really relaxed the ideas on some... The art style and magic is all over the place now. And not in a bad way, necessarily, right? Like, the new lands from the upcoming Kamigama Dynasty are about to be my favorite lands.
0: Oh, I mean, they are stunning. That's stunning, you know? We've seen the rise of, like, uh, various generations of artists as well, you know? But it is interesting how my favorite artist... <laughs> from Magic is also one of the originals, Anson Maddox. Is Anson
1: Maddox, is that Sengir Vampire?
0: Yep, Sengir Vampire. uh, Animate Dead, I think, was his first card that just, like, really stood out to me. But one of the reasons I love him is that I feel like he was one of the original artists to capture just how dark and nasty the world of Magic was. He also did, uh, what was it, Wall of Flesh? What was that regenerating artifact wall? Wall of Putrid Flesh? I'm actually looking at a list here, but he has illustrated literally so many cards. Here we go Uh, Living Wall. No it was like the wall, it had like teeth in it and like a fetus and stuff. And it was just like, you don't see very much of that in magic anymore, right? And and one of the things that I loved was that, you know, I came to the game, I was in fourth grade. Here I was like this kind of dorky kid in fourth grade. I liked reading fantasy. I was just kind of reading Red Wall or whatever, you know, you read in fourth grade. And I saw this game. Wow, this game is so adult. To me at the time, it felt like so grown up and so dangerous and do you, it was you know what i mean do you know the original pitch for magic
1: do you know what it was supposed to be no literally. So it was supposed to be a game was people would play it in between sessions of dnd that's how i got introduced to magic i was at a, a dungeons and dragons competition <laughs> like our library system where i grew up had like people would come in and and play like competitive dnd against each other like same missions or whatever and two of the dms from that system were playing this game And I'm like, what's that? And I think that the first card I perceive remembering was maybe a a circle of protection and blue in play. And we bought magic packs the next day. My friend group, I was like, let's buy Spelljammer. That is the official TSR one. Who knows what this Wizards of the Coast thing is, but I was outvoted.
0: Oh, I was outvoted by my friends. So uh, magic it was... It was a fateful moment. You could have veered way off the timeline. (laughs) And who knows, maybe you would have ended up being a professional comic artist or something. While we're on this topic of old meets new, and I know that you had told me, you know, before this conversation that you perhaps didn't have a lot to say about this, but I really do genuinely want to get your take. You know, as someone who's been there since the beginning, these are the perspectives I'm most interested in, right? Because you've had the most time to see the game evolve through its different phases. And so I wanted to ask you, how do you feel about alchemy and how do you feel about Magic kind of boldly stepping into this digital-only world for the first time? I'm gonna say like a very un pod
1: answer, probably. Oh. I consider Magic the Gathering Arena to be a Magic-adjacent product, Mm. not a Magic product. I enjoy it. I think that it's fun to play. And certainly in in recent months, like Clockwork, Mythic, three months in a row wasn't hard. I mean, I was really enjoying it. I was really dialed in. There was a point actually there where I was just like, if if there were Pro tours going right now, I'd be killing it, right? i feel like really prepared. I did that preparation on things like Best of One Limited, like a lot of Best of One Constructed. A lot of the precepts of what I always held as being the truisms of tournament magic Don't apply in Arena or vice versa. I think that you get a lot of transferable skill. My goal, I think, if you had to write down what I care about in Magic, was to be a good tournament Magic player. You get some of those skills, but they're transferable skills. I respect Arena, but it's its own thing. So I don't see Alchemy as uh, any kind of an infringement on Magic because I don't consider Arena Magic. I consider Arena like Magic's near cousin that I also Mm. like. I like
0: both Dark Chocolate and Milk Chocolate. They are both things that I like, but they are different things. You had this feeling about Arena even before Alchemy was introduced. Yeah. Arena is not magic. And I think that people criticize things. People say things like,
1: best of one isn't real magic. Best of one isn't competitive. I had a conversation, a half argument with someone on Twitter a few weeks ago about the hand smoother. Like, who cares? Both players get the hand smoother. Mm. Where it, it all evens out. I mean, CGB has a thought process, which is that if you're good, good in quotes, you get to go first and best of one less often. <laughs> I don't know if that's true. I think that the matchmaker is weird. That is weird, okay. right? Okay,
0: I'm glad to have you on record for that because that's my main conspiracy theory is that the matchmaker is Jack. It's weird. I have made deck recommendations on people because of the matchmaker,
1: you know, like, yeah. if I like... Make Mythic relatively easy playing kind of a Deadly Dispute Lolf deck and then just crush every event that I'm playing with, like, Mono Black Fell Stinger, which I did, by the Mm. way, right? I'm going to have a certain idea about what the best decks in Standard are. And then you walk into, like, you know, the Arena Open or something, you play against three blue-red decks in a row. Well, I didn't happen to play against those in 75% of my matches, right? Like, it's just, ah, another mono green deck. It's super impossible to say we don't have the underlying data set to say whether the matchmaker was weird or not, but I can tell you my matchups are way more annoying when I play blue red dragons than they are when I play other color
0: combinations. You're highlighting the fact that we've stepped out of what you would consider to be like a traditional magic and into like a walled garden curated experience. Right.
1: I, I read something, I think Drew Levin said it last week, which is that I'm going to translate this because I think he was talking about two different games, but like Magic Adjacent. One experience is like, if you want people to be really good at this, then you're going to reward skill. If you want somebody to play a lot of arena, you're going to reward time spent. Rewarding skill and time spent are two different things, and it's okay to reward time spent. If I went back and I said, Hans smoother, stupid, best of one is it Magic, I would just be like, yeah, sure, I agree. So what? There's more people enjoying magic now than there ever been before. Mm. And if you're so confident that these things that they're learning are so bad, then when tournaments open up again, you should just crush all these noobs that come in. It doesn't, there's no skin off your back. What's the problem? Decades grinding moto.
0: I'd much rather play arena than moto. And I had a God account. And so why is that? Is it the convenience? Is it like, what? what is it about Arena that gets you? This is a weird thing
1: to say. I made a point to make FNM almost every week. I started in the Dungeons & Dragons pre-release, which is like, you know, in July or something, end of June, whenever that was, up until about Thanksgiving. And I, this attendance has been poor since the holidays, right? So on a Friday night. I did it because I cared about playing Paper Magic, but I mean, a lot of the time I'd go play like four hours commitment of Midnight Hunt paper draft when I had a mode expectation of two and one. I think I 3 and owed one Midnight Hunt FNM at a pretty casual FNM. And I was without a doubt one of the best Midnight Hunt players on Arena. Right, there's no question. I was like Mythic Top 100 in the first week. Which is like weird, right? It's just like, okay, these guys don't know how to play Magic and they're kicking my butt one out of three chips. And I would literally like play my four hours worth of paper FNM and then go home and play like two drafts before I went to bed. Maybe I was just super jacked on Magic. It's, it's so low stress, man. <laughs> In other contexts, I can tell you, I have vivid recollections of tournament losses from tournaments that don't matter. Like random PTQs 15 years ago, I can remember... Some minor mistake I made to not top eight. Like I did this or I got mana screwed in this round to not top. Like I had a string where like I lost the win and into like five straight Star City. Mm. Always lost the win and in. it was never for a good reason. Like I, I was mana screwed on camera. I think almost every single time it was, it was horrible. Right. I can remember all those things. But like when I lose on Arena, I'm just going to play three more games in the next Flip. 10 minutes. Flip. It just washes it out. It just takes away all of the thing that I didn't like. There's no joy in paper magic without losing, because if you win all the time, that's not joyful. But I'm telling you, like, if you care to the level, I clearly cared at one point in my life, right? You, you remember these things for her, but I, my wife would tell me I was woefully unhappy coming back from long tournaments far more often than I was happy coming back chat at the screen sometimes i hate it when they top deck click the third epiphany you know i play with my back against the wall i'm playing so well they're like ah oh, top deck the last epiphany Yeah, i hate that half the time i made a mistake it was a minor mistake and maybe i could have eked one point in earlier and maybe i get better because of that but i can yeah. tell you i've probably lost hundreds of arena games i don't know i've played thousands of arena games i must have lost hundreds almost no arena losses do I remember like, it all? They don't haunt you. But there are so many times that I wish that I were a CGB-style magic content creator. Because the games that I play, I'm like, this would have been such a great game to comment. Mm. This is such a great teachable moment. How I did this or what my opponent did here is so interesting. And I, those joyful moments far outweigh... You know, the stressful moments of losing or getting top deck, even though it happens every day. If I don't like seven win an event, I'm kind of annoyed. Sometimes I don't four win an event and I don't care. And I just go pay my golds, and then I seven win the next event, right? And it's okay. I'm, the downside on Arena is so nothing.
0: Yeah, For The upside, I, I like it a lot. Does that answer your question? I I think what I love is that to me, it sounds like it has helped you, Michael Flores, at various points, highly competitive Magic player, highly invested pro-level Magic player. It sounds like it has helped you to rediscover some of that just love of the game.
1: With the way the world is, right? I wouldn't have played Magic for two years if there was an arena, (laughs) right? Like (laughs) instead, I played at a super high level. That was cool. I like that. I love that it has its own economy. Uh, Arjuna, explain this to me. Yeah. I don't understand people complaining about the arena economy.
0: Let's get into that because that's been a hot topic lately. And I'm sure a lot of people watching and listening to this are going to be very interested to hear you talk about it. But it sounds like you're a little bit more on the Arjuna CGB side of it. Is it because you draft a lot? First of all, I've evolved. So I've evolved as a player. out of An arena player, I should say. The last time I was on your show,
1: I was just like laughing like, I blew a bunch of Mythics on like Ellie Wick TumbleStrum because <laughs> of a CGB video. You know how much money I've spent on Arena? How many dollars I've spent on Arena? Can you guess? I'm guessing it's like somewhere in the hundreds. It's zero, zero dollars. Zero dollars. I have spent zero dollars wow. on Arena. I am Mythic every single month if I care. I don't get it. People comment on how many gems I don't have. Yeah, because I spend my gems to play the next drafts. If you understand, like, the basic economy, you're like, if you're a break-even or better player in Limited, you just have a limitless collection. And it's not hard to be a break-even or better player in Limited, I think. And if you're not that, you know, since about Thanksgiving or before then, I had like a lot of family commitments like the last month or so. I, mean, I don't think I played a single ranked game of limited in December, I should play one so that I just claim my packs or whatever for having a status before the month is up in the next two days. Right. So I should do that. But like, I just, I didn't have a time for that I'm doing other things, um, you know, I'll probably be a serious drafter again, semi-serious drafter again sometime in the near future. But I haven't ever since the scales came off my eyes about standard events. How is everyone just not infinite? Like, you have to be pretty bad to not have four and a half win expectation in a standard event, barely higher than like 55% win rate or something.
0: I think that maybe there's a little bit of being one of the best magic players in the world privilege going on here. <laughs> because, I mean, I know it seems simple to you. So, think about the people who maybe they've just come to the game in the last couple of months. And here's something that I think about a lot because. I'm totally with you and CGB is with you. And I think a lot of content creators are with you in that the economy doesn't seem overly punishing to the people who are very invested. There was a couple of reasons for that. Number one is that we've probably just played the client enough that we've figured out how to make it work for us. That's one thing that I think you're highlighting. But the other thing is that we're just used to a world in which magic cards cost hundreds or thousands of dollars. Oh, if you want, I could talk about Paper Man magic <laughs> economy.
1: So so here's the thing. Yeah. Okay. This is gonna sound so silly to you. At one point I thought
0: you could only wild card cards that you owned. That's an easy mistake to make right, because arena so, is annoyingly designed. Yes indeed. So the first time I got a goblin
1: chain whirler. Opening a pack or whatever. Every time I got a thousand gold, I would open packs. At that point, I didn't know I was supposed to stockpile my gold so that I could develop limited skills. So the first time I got a goblin chain whirler, I'm like, y'all, the world is about to change. Cause then I immediately wildcarded the rest of the goblin chain whirlers in my deck and it was on. And I probably had rare wild cards. I don't remember. It's just, you know, three years ago, you know, early on in Arena. I just didn't know that I could do that, right? I would have had a way better deck. The thing is, like I was playing like whatever. Five casting cost common haste dinosaur. Oh, there was God. in red, because like those are the cards I that I had to had. begin with. You know, I wasn't good, but I was like winning enough to get gold to open packs to eventually open one goblin chain whirler, right? P- anybody who's listening to this podcast, right? I think as a level of investment, which I think they can translate to this. Pick a deck that you like. Hopefully it's a monocolored deck because the the punishing thing in the arena economy is dual lands. All of your rare wild cards just gone, right? Well, no, if you draft enough, you get all the dual lands. That's true. But but if you don't draft enough, you don't get all the dual lands. So pick a good monocolored deck. Luckily, right now, there's at least two. And I would actually argue mono red is a really good deck that just nobody plays. Well, I Um, mean, in alchemy... Put, put Alchemy aside, I don't have an informed opinion on Alchemy. You ask, so, you know, Arjuna, what should we talk about? You're like, What's your opinion on Alchemy? My opinion is I played the midweek event to get the free cards, and then I never <laughs> played it again. My experience with Alchemy is I think I've watched two CGB videos
0: and like mm. one other random content creator videos. It seemed ridiculous to me, yeah, not in le- a bad way. So let's get the hot take from you. I do want to get just at least a little perspective. As someone who hasn't played it much, as someone who views Arena as just already a secondary Magic product. It could be the primary magic product. It's just magic adjacent. The question I have is, do you like the fact that trying something new and making a potentially like a forking of the magic card pool? I like anything
1: that makes people spend money on magic that is sustainable. I think some of the decisions they made in the past were not sustainable. I like that this is not economically damning. I dislike the fact that my gold span dragons don't seem to translate. <laughs> That's weird, right? Like, why do I have to have the crappy version of Goldspan Dragon as well as the... How about in Alchemy, I just get to have the regular or crappy version of Goldspan Dragon if that's the appropriate one? That I don't like. That's one of the reasons I didn't play Alchemy. I own the correct version of the card. I have to have the crappy version of the
0: card to play it in Alchemy? You get both, right? That is taken care of. But are you just talking about how you just don't like making the mental transition? This is news to me, man. (laughs) I didn't realize that I tried to make a deck with it and it like X out my guy.
1: So I assumed I couldn't play it. So I just never tried.
0: So now you are
1: blowing my mind. Oh, Michael. (laughs) That is not my fault.
0: No, that's not your fault. That's a stupid arena design fault. So this was a launch issue. It might still be an issue. But I never tried again because I was so turned off from that. Well, that would be a tilt, right? So no, what you needed to do, which no one told you you needed to do, (laughs) is all you needed to do is just remove them all from the deck and re-add them, and it would add the right ones in. This but, is
1: like when I got my first Goblin Chain
0: <laughs> The world changed. The thing that I hate is that you have to be in a subreddit to know that, or you have to be talking to your buddy Arjuna to know that. The that client's not crazy. telling you that.
1: This is crazy to me. I'm like a mythic tier player who's been playing Magic of the Gathering since 1994, and I can't figure
0: that out from launch. It's embarrassing, right? Woo! It's embarrassing. And I think it adds fuel to the fire. These people throwing the coal on the fire of, of you know, Wizards is terrible at making a digital offering. I think some of those criticisms are legitimately leveled. But I, but so I let actually- Let me talk to Bad Economy for a second. I've never talked about this publicly. Me and a bunch of my friends
1: are at John Finkel's house one night. One of them, I think Landy Ho is like, should I buy this card? Oko oh, thief of crowns. We're at <laughs> his house and we know a ban is coming up the next week. So BDM doesn't buy any Okos. While we're at John's house, I think Lan gets his four Okos for a variety of prices from like $24 to like $40. I go home and I buy my Okos on credit. As soon as I get home, I live 20 minutes walk from John's house. I buy all of my Okos at the same price for about $44. There's like a $20 variance in the 20 minutes from John's house to get back. The ban that happens on Field of the Dead, not on Oko. So Oko now spikes to even higher. So think about this for a second. If you were going to play competitive constructed during this window of magic, you kind of had to own Oko Thief of Crowns. Like you basically had to own it. So I'm a genius. I own I bought it for like 40 odd dollars. Anybody who wanted to play during this era basically had to pay the piper for this card. Opening enough packs of Throne of Eldraine to get the Okos is that's worse. Right. A month later, what's the value of Oko? $5, $10? $5, $10? I don't know, but you could at least play it in Modern at one point because I played it yeah. in Modern that November. There's no format you can play it. It's still playable in
0: Commander and a one-off it, in Vintage. It, it yeah.
1: literally won the Vintage World Championship that year, <laughs> which is a ridiculous statement to make. But yeah. this is a card that, like, it literally spiked in value by $20 literally on my walk home. Yeah. My other friend just didn't buy any because... He thought it might get banned that week he was wrong so it went up in value and, and then everybody had to own it and then it plummeted in value i think that is extraordinarily bad anything mm. turning people off of magic there was so much leverage on certain cards you kind of had to own the secondary market value of those cards is like so out of whack for an imprint card if I say arbitrary, maybe it is data driven from the perspective of the nice people in Renton, Washington, but it's arbitrary from the perspective of the market. Arbitrary bannings of cards destroy the secondary market. You could not do this in the stock market. You could not do this in a no. controlled securities environment. And they're not really any different, right? are yeah. whole business is built on speculating magic cards. I think that is a a very serious flaw in magic economy. I'll tell you another thing. I don't know if you saw this. I I did a lot of posting on Twitter, I think in the month of November on this, where I sorted through my entire close to 30-year magic collection in November and like reorganized and everything. And I posted a bunch of stuff. Like There's a lot of forgotten treasures or whatever, right? So among other things, I found four beta mana vaults. So I joked, I was just like, if I find a single revised mana vault I'll sell all these. So, of course, I found like seven fourth edition mana vaults or whatever. So am I now morally bound to sell the the beta mana vaults? I mean, I definitely should sell like I've surplus Gaia's Cradles. Like, it's crazy to own these things, to own more than four Gaia's Cradles, including I own Judge Promo guys cradles, stuff like that. It's really weird. Like when I talk to old school players, no one has ever been happy selling a restricted list card. The paper value on those mana vaults is extraordinarily high, right? It's $20,000 or something. There's no peak. No. I think selling like surplus guys cradles is a different question than this. I had so many wastelands. They were like $55 and they've been reprinted like four times since. Like that stuff is maddening to me. I've never sold like a magic card really
0: that's what fascinates me about magic is that in addition to being a game it's an economy i have friends who literally they spend more time thinking about the value of their magic cards than they do about what deck they're going to put them in for some people it's a creep it happens over the years like they started out a passionate player and over the years the finance aspects of magic it sunk its teeth into them <laughs> yeah, and now it's... they just they can't shake it man they can't let it go
1: so much of like the fortune of my magic. Card- Collection is just in Wastelands and Force of Wills that I bought for 50 cents, like in 1998 or whatever. Right. So I just have a ton, obviously, are tremendous value relative to that. But I never thought about how much it costs to make decks, really. 50% of my life as a tournament player, I just drafted well enough to just have every deck I needed to play. Then I borrowed cards for a while. I figured out that you could turn articles or whatever into (laughs) store credit. So. That's where I got my decks for the last couple of years. It's foreign to me that this is like a prohibitive thing, except when I sit down at FNM and there's like a 12-year-old kid sitting across from me who has $1,000 in front of him. Every single time that happens, I'm
0: like, where did this kid get the money for this? I don't know if you've heard this before, but Covert Go Blue tells the story about how one of the motivating factors for him to advance his career in life was that he wanted to be able to afford to play Magic. He did
1: it by doing it simultaneously, Well, there you
0: go, right? He did it in the best way possible. But I remembered that as well. Like I was not a well-off kid growing up. You know, I came from a family where like my parents keeping clothes on my back was enough of an expense. I didn't have a lot of pocket money to spend on a premium product like Magic. And I remember being every card that I acquired was a big deal. You'd spend a long time thinking about that. You'd spend time strategizing how you were going to get the next cards that you wanted or needed. So it's funny for me to have that in my childhood and then to even in my adulthood just be like, all right, you know, I got to kind of keep an eye on my spending on IRL magic it's something i actually have to consider a budget for and then so for me to go from that to going on arena and literally feeling i mean for me i feel like i just click a button and i've got the card it's so for me it's a total paradigm shift in the value of the cards i also sometimes can have a little bit of a hard time relating to people who feel like they're getting squeezed so hard every time i look at like my bill from cool stuff or
1: whatever wherever i'm wearing cards from and i'm like a plus EV magic player right more is coming back to me than i'm putting into it you know from a financial standpoint every time I have to make a deck for like an eternal format or even some standard decks or whatever bill could be pretty substantial you'll kind of shake your head at that i have so many surplus sacred foundries that have never seen the inside of a sleeve for example. That's why I'm just flabbergasted at FNM when I see like these kids who have a thousand dollars in front of them. I just don't get it. Like when people are complaining about the arena economy. If your account gets hacked and somebody steals your password, they can't even screw you. What can they do? Open your wild cards? People get their moto accounts stolen. That's like a yeah. house mortgage
0: sometimes, right? What yeah. can they
1: do to you when they get your arena account? You're gonna get it recovered. That's a good point. <laughs> like it's not the same thing. Yeah. And so what I was saying before is like pick a one color deck for now. Get good at that deck earn enough gold that you can draft you don't have to be the ham you just have to draft well enough to sustain your drafting habit and if you can sustain your drafting habit which is not that hard people are like oh you have this kind of privilege yeah maybe like i do have a years of experience to draw on but every draft format is new and different and i'm good at some and i'm less good at other ones right get to that level and you will be an infinite arena player I I have taken like months and months of never even logging into Arena before, right? And I come back and I've been able to reestablish it using these principles. This economy sustains for you, but they give you free gold just for
0: playing games every day. I'm with you as someone who, the last time I spent money on Arena was 2019, and I've gone infinite, not even drafting every set. There were just a handful of sets that I went really deep on, and that basically just established my complete billfold moving forward. I think that where it really... Really starts to grind on people is for the people who don't want to have to do that and they're looking across the uh, the aisle at like rune Terra or some of these other games and they're seeing these like abundant payout systems
1: if they're free to play that means that you're the product we represent the play experience of other players you can get everything you want magic gathering if you're willing to put time in and if you're not willing to put time in then you put money in that's your yep. choice but if you said okay i want to put neither time nor money in we couldn't have cared very much. I would also like to win the lottery and get the attention of supermodels every day. That would be a great life I think for me. If I was winning the lottery every day. All right, that's not
0: anybody's real reality. There was a really great Twitter thread that was made, and I wish I can remember the name of this person. Pretty well-known uh, voice in the gaming community, and I, I'm just I'm blanking on it at the moment. And I retweeted it, so you can find it on my Twitter if you want. This guy was basically comparing the economy of Arena to other free-to-play TCGs.
1: Was it Drew Levin? Yes, yeah, it, it was
0: Drew Levin. So did you read that Twitter thread? Yeah, so the thing that I said earlier that I was describing to Drew is a
1: translation of that, I think, into yeah. Arena Economy.
0: And what Drew highlighted was that he was saying that you have to examine what the product is. And he was saying that on Arena, the product is the cards. The whole goal of Arena is to sell you cards. The whole goal of a platform like Runeterra or some of these other games is... To get you invested enough in the game that you want to buy the frills, right? The like the aesthetics stuff, or whatever the aesthetic. I
1: look at the bills that I get, again whatever Apple charges that I have because I yeah. have like the master Apple account or my wife pays money for premiums in words with friends. I don't know <laughs> how go. much money my son <laughs> has put into virtual currency to play like it's flabbergasting to me. I'm like, how much should we spend for this Xbox? And then the game costs as much money. But you put way more money into the virtual currency to continue playing the game. I already paid money for the game. Now I need contracts for my players, right? And he's just like constantly opening packs. He like opened like the rarest Steph Curry this week and then sold it for like 3 million virtual currency or something. I'm like, how long is that going to sustain you? He's like, I already blew it all in other players, right? (laughs) (laughs) He's like, I only came off with like 1.5 million. That's not even a free-to-play game, right? So like uh, Words of Friends is like a free-to-play game and she's just paying money to play free-to-play games. And here's a question. If any of their parents out there who have children of a certain age, I can recommend a thing. I have been playing The Last of Us and The Last of Us 2 with my daughter. She has a PS5. So she just plays The Last of Us and then we like kind of narrate it together. And my wife makes fun of me. Here's like a nerd playing a video game and here's a different nerd watching that nerd play the video game. And I'm like, no, we are embarking on a narrative experience together. It's not that different from watching a movie, except you're more directly invested. I don't understand how that game makes any money. That game costs $100 million to make. <laughs> they sold yeah. like $160 million worth of units or something. That does not pay a $100 million bill. They won yeah. 80 Game of the Year awards, but I think they're in the hole by like $40 million on something. I don't understand that model. You tell me, man. Arjuna, do, do you know about video game economics? Because okay. I don't know how that no, works.
0: No. I mean, that's why people are going to these like pay-to-play models, right? Feet free to play, pay to play. Cause cause it scales. There's no limit, right? There's no I limit paid on the amount. $19 for The Last of Us Two.
1: It costs a hundred million dollars to it's
0: yeah. it's good. Do you yeah. play
1: these kind of games?
0: That game is good. This is kind of a good transition because, I mean, I could talk to you all evening, Michael J., but, you know, there's only so long that people are going to sit down and and listen to this. It's always a fight to get this show ending on time. If there's one thing that CGB and I and pretty much everyone <laughs> agrees on who comes on this show, it's that it's fun to talk about magic. But one of the questions that I have for us just going out here, you've, you've played magic competitively for literally decades. You know, I know that you're maybe not necessarily at a phase where you're feeling like you're full of fire to like you know
1: i am literally grinding with the teenagers again my apprentice roman fusco and roman's apprentice etai kurtzman both top aided in las vegas etai has like a parallel friend called patrick and they share a collection or whatever and they're like so we're like all in on the next event And we are IRL practicing for the old school pre-modern event in Boston coming up in May. And I have not had this much fun in years. Oh, my God. Nice Paper magic. Yeah, I don't know. I just talked to all my friends. Like, half of them are, like, really good pro players from, like, 10, 15 years ago. They're not, like, current pro players. But we all remember how the cards worked back then. We're all like, these decks could all be so much better. Tournament performances, it's so fun pre-modern.
0: It's the most un-arena thing I could be talking about that was still magic. <laughs> you know, it seems like such a sweet format. One of my favorite content creators is Andrea Mangucci. No. Me too! The guy just loves magic, so I've been watching his progress into the pre-modern format. I, it, I love Mangu so much. Like, I'd say like he's my second favorite YouTuber. Okay, my first
1: favorite YouTuber is Katie Sackhoff. No offense.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm
1: not even aware of this person. Katie Sackhoff played Starbuck on uh, Battlestar Galactica. Ah, The reimagined Battlestar Galactica. She's a a woman. Not a magic content creator. So, yeah. So she's not the guy who played face on uh, the A-Team because he was the guy who played Starbuck in the original Battlestar Galactica. But she was like in her early 20s when she played Starbuck. And it's like 20 years have gone by. But she's worked constantly since. She's a really interesting. This is 2021. So take what I'm saying with a grain of salt, right? She's an attractive blonde actress. But her body has changed over the course of like the last 20 years. Like a lot of her YouTube content is about this is how much I weighed when I played this character. This is how I trained to play this character. She often plays female action hero type roles. She builds her body to play them in very different ways. And she's also like a competitive Spartan racer and stuff like that. She sounds like a badass. She's like literally weighs more than me playing some roles she played with Vin Diesel. And I'm like. Which is, that's not a profile for, you know, you think of as an attractive blonde Hollywood actress. So she's just like, I was playing opposite Ben Diesel, so I thought my body should have more mass. She wasn't like wearing revealing clothes or whatever in that role. So she's like, I'm not sure if she just got fat or if she just put a lot of bulk on with muscle or whatever. She played this one role on a show called Longmire, which is on Netflix for a long time. And she's... The main thing about this role is i had to have a really good butt because like the director always shot me from behind. So I trained this way and she does like, all the, the crazy things that you do to be a health nut slash actually fit person who is now probably approaching her 40s. But she came into the public eye when she was in her 20s and she's never stopped playing action badasses and she, she just like cryo freezing and every kind of like goobery thing that you she has cheat day and she just eats all this chocolate and candy from different countries and it, anyway my favorite youtuber is katie Sackhoff. my second favorite youtuber is coverco blue but i love mengu i'd say he's my third favorite and the reason i love him is he's just like Talking magic in whatever accent, you know, he's, he's got his Italian accent. And then, like, whenever something bad happens, he just starts swearing he's in just Italian. Swearing oh, up man. Storm.
0: Yeah. I and love it so much. All of the Italian swear words I know I've learned directly from Mangu. So, yeah, it's yeah, perfect. So. But this is what I wanted to ask you, right? You know, we're coming into the year 2022, and I think something that's on a lot of people's minds is just organized play. We can't go deep on this, but I'm just curious if you have any thoughts. William Huey Jensen, just Announced. my very good friend baby huey there you just go. announced
1: yesterday that he's taking a role so here's my thought pro magic etc the hall of fame stuff like that it was always kind of a dice roll, coin flip, whatever you wanted to call it, in the hollowed halls of Watsi about whether or not it ever made them any money. Magic Gathering Pro Tour was originally a marketing expense when it came out in the mid-90s. They're like, we're going to spend a million dollars, right? That was the purse or whatever. We're going to create competitive interest. I assume it was successful. I think if there had been no Pro Tour back then, I would have never gotten invested in Magic more the it was. You know, I was playing group game Table Magic in cafe at my school on Thursday nights, but nothing like that the level of play we transformed from playing group games on Thursday nights to like a culture of play test sessions multiple times a week mm. to try to get on the pro tour mileage varied about how good the teams I ever was on once I got on the pro tour. I mean, I was on the best team in the world multiple times, but that was a good kind of a hit or miss thing for me over the course of a 20 odd year career. That was, I, th- I think an effective thing that they did back then, but with the rise of s- some of these other things, I think it'd be very difficult to make the argument inside of or This past two years has been their most successful in terms of revenue generated, largely because of Arena. Their player base has expanded tremendously, largely because of Arena. They somehow are still supporting Magic Online. I have to assume the Magic Online revenues have gone down a lot. You know, people used to compare Magic Online with League of Legends or whatever. I'm like, well, Yeah, I understand League of Legends has... X amount of revenue coming in, but every other game that exists would kill for the revenue per user of Magic
0: Online. Oh, absolutely. People are spending like 40 bucks a week in drafts. Just think about the amount of money it's made over the period of time that it's existed. It's Mm -hmm. still got to be a cash cow that most development houses would be happy to have.
1: I think that there's going to be some version of a Pro Tour. I think there's going to be some version of online coverage, and I think it's going to be exciting and engaging. I think it's not going to be like... Probably what we saw right before the pandemic. What we saw right before the pandemic was like this hybrid that was trying to legitimize Magic having arena, kind of at the same time as you know tying that with pro level Magic. So I don't think it's going to look like that. They've made it pretty clear that they're not going to support the human beings that they had. You know, created a structure to support uh, prior to that. Like, I don't care. Like, if it looks like it looked like the end of the '90s, which was way less money, four pro tours a year, handful of grand prix that were largely paid for by the tournament organizers themselves. I think that would be great, and I think that in the United States there would be an enormous amount of interest in that. It's not that expensive for them to run. Like, call it two million bucks a year, right? One million dollars a year in prize money and another quarter million to put on four different shows,
0: probably about what it costs. It's like, how much did they pay Mr. Beast to do his little... They
1: don't even pay for articles anymore. Who has a column right now? Rosewater? Almost nobody else. They've transitioned so much to kind of the streaming sort of content creators, and they can like leverage the stuff that they have for a ton of free promotion. You're going to have tournament organizers like uh, Star City, Channel Fireball, regional promoters who are going to figure out a way to make money on PTQs. It doesn't have to be the biggest, most lavish thing in the universe for people to be interested. I would like there to be a retention-based program for serious tournament players. But if there's not, I've had a blast playing Magic like the last six months. And I, I, I tell this story sometimes. I had my second child. I was probably playing the best Magic of my life at the point that I had my second child. Then I didn't play in a Pro Tour for 10 years. I got back on the Pro Tour, had my best individual finish I ever had. I was on Team Ultra Pro and that stuff was great. And then I had to level up in my career for a while. I've always had this thought over and over again for probably the last 15 years, which was, will I ever play in another Pro Tour? Then the PTQ system changed to the store-based PTQ system. And I realized quickly that it was just FNM. Like I would literally just be playing against the people who I beat in FNM every week. And I'm like, this is the easiest path to the Pro Tour they ever put in front of me. And so I immediately qualified again. Right. So if there's anything like that, you're going to have people who are capable, who are happy to be there. We had such a passionate pro tour community when we were all paying our own bills. I had to get myself to the Pro Tour. I had to pay for my own hotel. I could subsidize it with writing money. I could get a sponsorship from somebody. We had no shortage of Kai Budes and Gabrielle Nassif's and Bob Maher's and John Finkel's when the world was like that. If they want to return to that world, you are going to have great players playing great magic on camera promoting your game for you. I promise you that. Of all the people in the world who know that, Huey is one of the people who knows that. Huey was a... He built his Pro Tour Hall of Fame career in that era. Like it was cool. Like I'd have friends who had like a expensive hotel room paid for by Watsi, and I would hang out in it. Like I would like stay in their hotel room instead of paying for my own hotel room. That was cool. I didn't need it. People just joked to me like Brad Nelson or Ari Laxer. Just like you're just happy to be here. I'm like yeah, I'm happy that I'm like 42 or whatever, and I. I'm still good enough to be here and I don't need to win every round. My illusions playing on the pro tour are not that I'm going to win the pro tour. So like, I wanted to be good enough to be here and have a story to tell when I got back. And if I make a few bucks, it's not even going to wash out my travel costs probably, right? That's not why you play. This is just how I feel that everybody has to feel this way. If you want to do something, it's worth trying to do that thing. Well, and there's no other way to check if I'm doing it. Well, now that I say it out loud, nobody ever asked this to me before. Give us the late 90s Pro Tour. Everybody has to pave their own way. Prize money is okay, not spectacular. People who love magic will show up. It's a modest
0: proposal. No one can call you outlandish for suggesting. It costs
1: them $2 million a year. Local tournament organizers bear most of the costs and they wash it out with card sales on site. That is proven to be a sustainable model. There was certainly a point where they were spending way more money on the architecture of the system and promotion around the system, then they were actually giving new
0: players. What I'm hearing from you is that, A, of all, we do need some kind of a system to motivate people. I would like right? it. I think that we do. You know, you're always going to have the aspirants of the world who want to take it to the next level. And I think it is important to have something for them. But B, of all, it doesn't need to cost Wizards a lot of money, to be something that people will show up for and excited about. And I agree, I was so stoked to hear when Huey got the job. Within whatever Wizards allows him to do, I have full faith that he's gonna do the best job. One change I would advocate very strongly for would be to time the set
1: releases not how they've been the last couple of years, more like they've been previous to that. The reason people tuned into the Pro Tour and got excited about the Pro Tour before is they wanted to see what the hell the deck Shada Yessa was going to make. Yes. What did Gabriel Nassif come up with? If yes. the format has already been solved by a million iterations on Magic Online and Magic the Gathering Arena, there's no reason to tune into it. The average player can't tell the difference between John Finkel and Paulo and Huey Reed Duke at the table, right? It's just mm. some player who's making a play that they don't understand. They're playing the same deck I'm playing, just better. Yeah. But they don't even know that it's better. That's the <laughs> thing. I asked somebody once, I'm like, there's no question that Ben Stark is better than I am. Does he have enough of a better win rate on Magic the Gathering Arena that if just a general population person watched him play and watched me play, they could tell the difference? Mm. And I don't think his win rate is enough higher than mine that they would be able to tell the difference. Mm. That is a fundamental problem. If you are going to build kind of a pro tour, whatever you want to call it, around stars, which is what I think the pro tour has always done really well, you have to create some differentiation for the stars. And one of the things that you have to do is to unflatten the field. Right now, Mm -hmm. the field is flattened by the list being out too early. I think it's really good for super teams to dominate. Oh, you're privileged, you're friends with these people. That is true. But I also don't play in every pro tour. You want to see... Reed Duke or Huey or whoever else the name was at the time, making multiple Pro Tour top eights every single year and squashing people once they get there. That is the way that you legitimize the skill aspect of Magic. If you have four different events with 32 different players in the top eights, there
0: is no way to say who is good. It's true. It's hard to build a continuous narrative, right? Yeah. Because so, you're just like, yeah, so-and-so player, yeah, they ground up, and this is their first top you eight.
1: You and- absolutely need to unflatten the information curve. Yeah. That is number one, and it will increase viewership because people will be excited to watch You need to make it so that one of the best players in the world is cranial extractioning for a card that is not in the opponent's deck and then doing it again in the next game, even though he was proven to be wrong in the previous game. That is a necessary component of unflattening the the information curve. (laughs) We're going to rock and roll in Boston in a pre-modern in in old school. It's going to be awesome. Going to come with some decks that people
0: don't know about yet. That's going to be exciting. You're going to put it on the map for us, Michael. (laughs) Uh, I hope so. (laughs) Love it. I think that this is a great place for us to go out on... Michael, thanks so much for taking the time to come here and span the gamut of topics that we've spoken about tonight. Always a pleasure having you on. Always a pleasure just having your perspective of so many of the different angles that you've come at Magic from over the years. If people want to follow up with you and keep up with you and follow what you do, what's the best way for them to do that? Yeah, so on
1: Twitter, I'm at 5 with Flores That's a way. I write on Cool Stuff Inc. about every week. And if I can plug a podcast to people who listen to Magic the podcast, of the Ironing podcast, I am currently doing a project called barbarian class i pair it with my cool stuff article every week and good amount of the time magic whatever they call it las vegas top a competitor roman fusco joins me uh the aesthetic is very similar to what we used to do on a podcast called ancestral recall CGB will tell you is a good podcast. I don't know if you listen to it.
0: <laughs> I have not listened to it, but I'm stoked to hear about Barbarian Class. I think I maybe just like saw some mention of it in passing on Twitter, but it didn't really register for me. So I'm really glad that you brought it up again because literally when I hit stop on this recording, I'm going to go and load that up. Please do. And all, all of your listeners... Also loaded up, it's Barbarian Class on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Sounds amazing. Thanks so much, Michael. Wishing you a happy new year and uh, excellent times with your family. Go crush it in in pre-modern, man. Oh, I will, man. Wild Mongrel didn't didn't stop being unbeatable. You know what you can't beat? A Mog Fanatic. You remember when Mog Fanatic was the best one drop of all time? (laughs) Okay. Mog Fanatic. I wasn't playing at the time, but it's (laughs) cut such a groove into history. How could I forget it? Hopefully we'll have you on the show again before long. In the meantime, take it easy, Michael. (sighs) Bye. Thanks for having me.